in terms of wild turkeys. Out of all these effects, can you think of any positive ones tied to supplemental feeding corn? Not off the top of my head. I think our silence is an answer <laughs> in itself. Welcome to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. Happy that you're here for another episode. There's a few things I need to cover before we get into today's particular subject because, quite frankly, the subject of today is a tricky one. So, um, first and foremost, we put these episodes out there to be informative. Uh, we stumbled upon this subject and we knew we wanted to cover it, but we knew we there's no way in the world we could do it justice if it was just Jordan and myself sitting in a room speculating on, on something that is as important and um, potentially as controversial as this. So we brought in folks that are scientists, that are wildlife biologists, that know what they're talking about. And so we can get a real balanced science-based perspective. So um, these guys are, are, are folks that you've heard on here before. You've heard them on here very recently. We have uh, Dr. Marcus Lashley and Dr. Will Goolsby of the Wild Turkey Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It, it's not, frankly, it's not the most fun of conversations, but it is a very informative one. I think it's going to be one that is thought-provoking. So I'm going to get straight into it. Hope you enjoy the show. So, Jordan, I know you and I have talked about this prior to, mm-hmm. but we wanted to bring this, I guess, to give the opportunity to these two gentlemen that are sitting with us who are obviously far more knowledgeable, Dr. Lashley, Dr. Goolsby. One of the things that we would felt like it, it's been talked about, like we've heard questions pop up about it, but not a lot, but it was... I thought it was a question that needed to be asked more. It's something that's been on my mind a good bit and me and you've talked about it yeah. it's like we don't have any data to talk about or no have any knowledge other than just what we see basically to go straight at it in the past in recent years i'll put it like that there's been a lot of changes in baiting laws particularly with whitetails mm-hmm. um, i remember when i was a kid baiting of any kind was a no-no i mean that was like you'd hear about Man, the guy down the road got busted for putting out corn, and mm-hmm. it was like a, oh, a big taboo thing. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward through all the changes that have made, if you have, in Mississippi, talking about my home state, yep. if you have corn or any other kind of feed in a spin cast feeder or a covered trough, you can sit on top of that thing and shoot a deer if you want to. But mm-hmm. we're not talking about deer. We're talking about wild turkeys. Basically, we're noticing, like, especially on private ground, obviously, you end, there's corn feeders that were never there before, there's corn feeders that are running all throughout the year, including the spring. And I would have to think, and here's where I'll kick it over to you, that would have to have some impact or implications on wild turkeys and how we hunt them. And I would, I would add to that, too, that one of the things that I feel like we hear all the time, you know, from other scientists and hunters and folks that we talk to is that uh, how many people are killing turkeys with corn in their crop that are hunting properties where they mm-hmm. know there's no corn yeah, or, I mean, or I, even in the middle of every spring public yeah. public track every well, spring. I, I have killed a couple on public land that there shouldn't be any feed anywhere near them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then they you know if it's a little bit later up in the morning that's pretty common i to have them yeah i killed a turkey second to the last day of season last year and i know for a fact that 
there was no well on the property i was hunting obviously mm-hmm. i can't speak to the bordering ones that's 1400 acres yeah that, there was not a feeder or feed on the ground anywhere on that thing mm-hmm. crop pool and yep. it, it got i mean it and honestly became a little dejecting you know because yeah. it's not the first time that's happened mm-hmm. to me or mm-hmm. people that i know and that's again it's like you start to think like this has to have an impact yeah and we know this is a loaded topic yeah yeah and well it, this one is a, a topic that i don't know when I, when i've talked to people about it, it it's like instant defense you know people just get really upset about it and and you know we we got prepared for this and we're thinking about you know trying to address, address some of the data that we do have on uh, various species mm. <clears throat> and you know I, I constantly think about the interactions that i've had and it's not you know it's legal yeah for you to do it we're not trying to cast any blame on anybody like that you know this isn't about making people feel bad or or whatever that this is just you know we need to understand the implications of things we do and uh you know sometimes we're doing things and and uh, they have implications that people aren't aware of but in my experience i have talked to quite a few people about this and it it really provokes this this uh, defensive posture if, with somebody that uh is engaged in mm-hmm. and practices uh you know like that so it's certainly one of those issues that you know i don't hear many people talk about it because it's so hard to talk about mm-hmm. we you know it's 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 like you're blaming each other right over it. and this is i'm not I am not hunter against hunter here. No. Mm. You know, like we all need to come together and and uh, that's the only way we really are going to make movements to, to do things right. And we got a lot of concern with turkeys. So I think this is important conversation to have and that's why we're here mm-hmm. because we want to, you know, just cover the data that we have. Right. Yeah. Education. Yeah. I mean, education's key. That's our job. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as wildlife scientists and researchers, we're not here to make value judgments or to shame people it's to give you the information on marcus said it well um so that any practice that you're implementing uh, according to the best available data that we have that you go into it with both eyes open understanding Mm -hmm. the pros and cons of it yeah when you're within your legal right to do whatever's legal and and i'm glad that you said that because it is important to say i know guys that go into a quote supplemental feeding program Mm -hmm and their intentions are a hundred percent because they think that's better for their deer herd or it's mm-hmm. some of them think this is better for my turkeys or this yeah. is what i need to do to get turkeys and yeah. there's not any sort of malintent well, i think most people are are in that boat I mean, right most people are trying to help you know they're trying to make their resource better more abundant and there are healthier. a lot of folks out there that don't know what else they can do mm-hmm. you know talk you know pouring out some feed is a lot simpler than trying to figure out how to identify you know 10 plants that comprise quality brood rearing habitat for example yeah. you know the, mm-hmm. those things are are you know feeding is more within reach of, mm-hmm. of a person is assuming that they have the funds to do it mm-hmm. right um it's not something that they have to very be very knowledgeable about to execute right so y'all have some data yeah so I, i've been really interested and and concerned you know but will and i both especially as part of the you know the new podcast we're constantly digging through the literature and i'm learning stuff and we're, we we know that we should be concerned about turkeys right 
and we're trying to figure out what are the concerns and do we have enough data to be concerned is it a cause is it part of it you know and and i think we have enough information that it needs to be well let's I'm ready to dive off in this thing and learn yeah. something. <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious on what y'all's, you know, what you've been studying and yeah, what came out of it. What's your assumption? Y'all. Whatever y'all are willing to share about the subject of baiting and how that impacts wild turkeys, whatever y'all are willing to share with us today, we are all ears. Yeah. And, well, if it, and if it makes you mad, direct all emails to Marcus. <laughs> Lashley. Yeah. Yeah. So you know to to start with what most people think about i think I, i'm one of these people that initially when i was thinking about the implications of you know some of these these uh feeding practices is that it's going to influence the harvest rate of turkeys mm-hmm. and that that is like the outer layer of the onion mm-hmm it's the obvious thing that most people think about. Uh, we actually, I don't think we have have uncovered much data on no. that. Other than we know anecdotally that this is an argument amongst hunters all the time about who's getting too close to their feeders or whatever. And, uh, you know, there people argue over that, but I don't think we have very good data on that particular thing. But that's just the outer layer. Mm-hmm. And we do have some good data on the inner layers when we start drilling in some of it's striking mm-hmm. so one of the studies that i was a part of is actually it coincided with the change in feeding laws in mississippi because as part of that process uh they had i don't know i'm not very good with the legislating part but mm-hmm. part of that law had assigned uh money for research to understand the implications of that decision gotcha so it funded multiple projects through mississippi state i was a professor there at the time and then moved on to florida before uh, the project was completed mm-hmm. but it uh, was part of of uh, some of the initial designs and and, and uh, oversaw one of the graduate students involved in it but one thing that was really striking to me is we did an, uh, experiments where we were tracking the use of feeders and we set them up. We tried to mimic what people did in the state, hmm. just spin cast. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we had, we actually did track a lot of feeders that were on people's properties. Uh, and then we also tracked feeders that we implemented in an experimental design where we could do some really interesting work. And the thing that was striking to me immediately out of the gate is what do you think the number one con- consumer of the the feeder was? If I had to uh, guess, raccoons. Raccoons. That's what I was going to be my guess. Even more than deer. I would say time spent there. Yes. Is that what, right? Yeah. Is that right? So in in our study, about seventy five percent of the use was not deer. Not Everything. oh, so not seventy five percent of the use was not deer. Yeah. Hmm. so that that was immediately yeah striking to me and raccoon was the number one wow because yeah. it seems like just watching cameras on feeders and stuff like raccoon walks oh up there God. he he gonna chill for the rest of the night <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean we're i'm seeing them they're they're showing us videos of the chubby raccoons you know they can't even crawl in their hole when they get done mm-hmm. with their 
you know those things are popping out online but that that was one thing that that initially was pretty striking to me Mm -hmm. and uh when you go through the literature on feeding studies where they're actually tracking the use by different things they are almost always in their range you know in the range of raccoons Mm -hmm. they're almost always the number one user Mm -hmm. so so is i mean i know it's not good for a raccoon be around there all the time so what kind of what where my mind goes immediately is so what you say again we we don't (laughs) we live in a different we we can't think of of things in the way that y'all do because y'all are scientists i'm thinking that's true but i appreciate (laughs) well well what i think here's where my 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 mind goes is one of the biggest things you see right now in the turkey space which you see Mm. circling on social media is this kind of self-perpetuated uh push for people to trap mm. trapping nest predators and it always what you end up seeing is is usually a raccoon caught in a trap and mm-hmm. trap raccoons trap raccoons all well and good and so where my mind goes like so you're telling me that we may just have a kind of a self-repeating cycle going on we're trapping them but we're also feeding them so we just mm-hmm. we're just kind of keeping the thing going that's where my yeah. head goes oh yeah. you, you actually had a pretty good thought well, that's pretty reasonable mm-hmm. that's a pretty reasonable thought and some people even like keeping corn out to concentrate the raccoons to trap them. I've actually seen that response a few times where people were like, well, we got to in, in, increase trapping. They, they thought is not, maybe we need to be worried about, you know, the feeding mm-hmm. aspect. Like that's off the table, I guess. Uh, we got to increase trapping. The, the other interesting thing, we when we went, when we talked to you guys about doing this and knowing that, this is a sensitive subject we wanted to really give a due diligence and we've given it a really thorough mm-hmm. look in the literature and that got us looking at this from a global standpoint okay and uh another thing that was pretty striking right along those same lines is there was a european study they characterized the use based on you know what the users like into groups and they had one group that was nest predators would you like to take a guess on what proportion of the feeder use was by nest predators? That's not in the range. Y'all of didn't know y'all were getting quizzed today. Sure, I mean it's got to be over fifty percent. So I was going to say Man. I was going to say seventy. It's eighty percent. Eighty percent of the entire use is under mm-hmm. the qualification of nest predators, yeah, which I think is that predate nest on their game birds that nest very similarly to our game bird that mm-hmm. we're talking about. And I think it's remarkable, too, Marcus, how consistent that is with the 75% that y'all found yeah. in the study that you were involved in in Mississippi. There was you go a, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, yeah. and it's almost the same exact number over there. Well, and uh, I, I don't remember the specific numbers, but it's very similar pattern on multiple other studies from the other places in the United States. Hmm. We, we have very consistent data on that. You know, the majority of it's not going to the target animal, which is usually whitetails for us. Right. Uh, majority of it is not going to that animal, and a large portion of it is, in many cases, uh, they, you know, when they group them that way, it's to nest predators. Yeah. You ain't kidding about layers. There's a lot of layers in this. <laughs> well, so we, we were only on the second one. Well, the yeah. first thing comes to my mind when we talk about this. <laughs> so, and you, if you don't know, that's fine. Like, but. Mm from a nest predator type animal and you're supplementing feeding and that's attracting those are you bringing those nest predators from a different home range to that area 
I mean, are you just feeding what you have right there in their normal area? Are you are they actually finding that and staying there? That's a great question. Then we don't really know. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. We 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 we've got some other stuff that's related to that. Yeah. But um, we're, we're I'm I'm surprised your mind went there first because I feel like where I mine first goes is thinking about is this turning into supplemental feeding of predators yeah. thereby increasing their survival rates and their reproductive output uh, yeah and we don't have data on that either yeah we weren't able to find how it affects reproduction of raccoons mm. that it may exist and if you get if somebody out there is listening and you know of that data set send it to us because we will cover it yeah well, well uh, yeah, I, I spun off of what lake was talking yeah. about you know and i was like in my mind i was like you know if you're attracting more nest predator type animals to this area are you and the whole trapping feeding yeah. cycle yeah are you just steadily bringing in new animals because you're feeding and that way yeah, <laughs> yeah. well you you could so there's there's multiple layers to, even to that yeah so we we have a term that we kind of throw out you probably don't hear it very commonly and i don't even among biologists but the the relative density mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right so you, you think about around that feeder and we're concentrating use of the the animals that are there mm-hmm. maybe there's something we don't have the data on it but you could have this attraction of new animals to that which then increases density so your effective density is around the feeder is far higher because you've concentrated use of the number of individuals in a smaller area and you potentially attract new ones don't have data on that part we know about the concentration of the same you know the individual raccoons that are using the feeder are obviously concentrating their use around it uh maybe we get we get more immigrants into it as well i don't know and maybe it affects reproduction don't know we don't have hard data on those two things but we do know that our effective density or that relative density around that feeder is artificially increased substantially that's interesting we don't, we don't necessarily know the mechanism why but we know yeah, that it happens right. but the closest piece of information that we were able to ascertain that um that shows kind of a supplemental of feeding of feeding effect of this practice on a species that you don't want around is with feral pigs and we don't while we don't have a study saying putting you know spin feeders out with corn in them increases pig numbers or pig reproduction we do know that pig reproduction is closely tied to acorns you know to mm-hmm. mass crops mm-hmm. and corn has essentially the exact same nutritional profile or close to it mm-hmm. of acorns so it's reasonable to believe if there's enough of that out on the landscape that it could lead to females being in better body condition and mm-hmm. being able to reproduce the larger litters and more often yeah um now so you could actually day- increase the reproductive rate we see that with masting there's some data to suggest the same thing in agricultural landscapes right. with pigs but huh. don't know about the the feeder but it's perfectly reasonable hypothesis based on the data we have that is so, interesting so it's possible that we're essentially creating hot spots for these nest predators just better yeah, places prob- for them yeah, to thrive problematic species in general yeah and here's here's where my mind goes with that ever again going back to these changing in the baiting laws i know because i'm out there and i'm i'm seeing it on places that i have that i've hunted in the past or places i've had permission to hunt on there's 
feeders where there never were feeders before. Mm-hmm. It's it's getting to where it's hard to go on a piece of private ground and there not be some sort of feeder somewhere. It may be one, it may mm-hmm. be five of them. But it's where my mind goes is like this is starting to happen on a large scale mm-hmm. area. It's starting to happen on a state level. Yeah. It's I, I would say that it's very rare that I go on a property that's not covered up with feeders. Mm. And you just look at it and from the standpoint of, you know, how many little mom and pop gas stations in rural areas have bags of, you know, pallets of corn even. Every one. Inside the front door, just out there on the porch. Or, you know, they've even got those drive-by corn dispensers, you know, those small grain mm-hmm. bins now mm-hmm. uh, where you can buy it empty corn bags all up and down the sides of the rural highways yeah uh i mean i we we don't have good data on how feeding practices have changed post legalization Mm -hmm. in certain states but it stands to reason from all these observations that they've increased somewhat you know we don't know the exact extent but right it, it just from anecdotal data you just have to be like it it has to have right because you're just again we're seeing them everywhere right So, what would you expect to happen if you're a turkey that decides to nest near a feeder? Well, I mean, in my mind, I'm going off kilter here. I'm going to a a fishing pond. (laughs) But in my mind, you get a whole bunch of bass with very little uh, men are covered. (laughs) (laughs) And men are going to get ate up. Are they... I may be putting the cart ahead of the horse here. Does it seem like the turkeys are recognizing that it's a hot spot, or are they nest? Or are they still nesting close to feeders? Don't have the data. Quit gotcha. teasing them, Marcus. Just yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't know enough about how it changes a wild turkey's patterns to know if that changes where they nest according mm-hmm. to a feeder location. Yeah, uh, I have not seen data to look that that is. Uh, assessed where nesting occurs relative to feeders right so the closest thing that i'm aware of related to that is with deer mm -hmm. and we've shown that while deer don't shift their home ranges they do increase the intensity of use of areas around bait piles and feeders Mm -hmm. within the home range um and it's reasonable to think that if turkeys are regularly using that that would be kind of the same thing So, so it's like you said they could end up nesting there more frequently because there's a feeder there they could yeah or they could avoid it because right. there's high risk there mm-hmm. or, or we really don't know uh they may just nest randomly across the landscape and relative to them i, I don't know what to tell right. you on that mm-hmm. um, but think about how many feeders are potentially on the landscape right and if let's just assume that sometimes they do nest near them i don't know how they could there are definitely situations that I've seen where it'd be pretty hard for them not to be nesting yeah. near one. No matter where they go, they're going to be near one. Yeah. 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 They don't have a choice to be far from it, you know. So mm. uh, that's obviously changes based on where you're at and everything. But uh, we we tried to dig into an obvious implication to well, what if they nest close to it. Mm. We have uh, a few good studies on that they have limitations because we had to use simulated nest mm. it's incredibly difficult to capture a hen and know where she's going to nest mm-hmm. so it's, it's very difficult to manipulate uh some in an experimental design with real turkeys and real nests and uh, to my knowledge we do not have that data yeah okay. and so and uh, so but, going into this you know the immediate 
limitations of such a study are that um, number one, you know, you don't have a, a predator potentially cueing on seeing that hen. You know, the mm-hmm. visual cue. Or, yeah, or any kind, any kind of cue, or smelling, with the hen. or yeah. smelling her, mm-hmm. which would maybe help them locate the nest. But on the on the flip side, you also don't have a hen there to defend the nest. Yeah, she and think about an like an aerial egg eater, like a crow. If it sees an egg laying there, it's gonna fly down there and eat the egg. Mm-hmm. But if the hen's sitting on top of it, it's not gonna see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So yeah and then you have the defense i posted i posted a few videos like this showing how defensive the hen is of her nest yeah she'll slap run everybody off and it's pretty impressive yeah <laughs> yeah i've seen those videos uh, it yeah. is impressive yeah and, so and really, brett brett collier recently sent us some videos yeah, so we, we have an episode we recorded with with brett I, I it'll probably be right about the same time that this this goes live i assume uh where he had a bunch of data what was that what what subspecies was that i can't remember if that was rios or easterns no i don't think it yeah i don't remember but uh he sent us a bunch of it was goulds it was Goulds. was it yeah uh he sent us a bunch of pictures of hands sitting on the nest and there's a bear standing next to it like she just sits there and they just ignore her hmm uh, it was kind of interesting. There was another but one. We've with had a, a really good conversation with him about all that, which is going to kind of turn, is going to definitely make people think hard about nest predation just in general and how we've been thinking about it. It's quite different. But anyway, all that to say, the nest nesting information that I'm going to share with you has some limitations because of the way we have to do that experiment. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily represent a an actual hen nesting perfectly, but it's concerning okay yeah so i mean what we want to look at here are the trends not the absolute values of these numbers Mm -hmm. yeah so on the european study where 80 percent of the feeder use was by nest predators in that case they had they simulated nests near a feeder and then when it was a control it wasn't near a feeder and i I don't remember exactly the distances and all that Uh, we'll send you the paper if you want all Mm -hmm. you gotta do is ask uh but on the control about 30 percent of those were predated mm-hmm. or, or scavenged 30 percent of them in the control when there's no feeder around that jumped up to 65 percent more than double predation rate on the nest mm-hmm. which immediately to when they were located when if they're if the nest yeah. they you know they're simulating a nest so they're literally going out and making a little nest like a in this case it was uh, for a grouse or or a partridge i can't remember which species but a game a ground nesting game bird in in that european study when they simulated that nest near a feeder 65 percent compared to when it wasn't near a feeder it was 30 percent that's a big difference in more than more than double the nest predation wow so again let's make sure that we're very clear that that's a simulated nest and having a a hen or or female associated with that nest changes that dynamic some right and we don't have that other data but that's still concerning yeah this is a trend indicating that there's either greater predator abundance you know dude there's greater predator abundance in that area around the feeder like we said earlier we don't yeah. know exactly what the mechanism is right. if it's just that you're drawing them in but we, or that you're actually making more of them right but the, the effective density of the predator is higher regardless of what the mechanism yeah. is right right 
there's more risk to predation there because of so much use by predators. And, <laughs> and it's probable reason to believe that if a hen makes a nest close proximity to a feeder, you're again, I, I know not absolute numbers, but trending wise, they're higher probability of yeah getting wiped out the risk of the risk of that nest being depredated is higher yeah so we went from 30 percent 65 percent yeah that to me makes me pause like i'm a little bit i'm concerned right yeah for sure (laughs) so let's go on and double down on that there was another study in south georgia that did a similar thing and they were simulating turkey nests Mm mm-hmm or a quail nest, I can't remember. It was ground nesting bird again. They did it in a different way than that other study. So in this one, they have a non-fed, so that just means there's no feeder nearby anywhere. Mm. And in the non-fed simulated nests, the, uh, they did it over a gradient. So basically they, that means they're, they're gonna have a range of predation risk or predation events. Over that gradient for the non-fed site, that was 30 to 50% of those simulated nests. Again, we got the same issues with that study design as we talked about with the other one, right. but 30 to 50, you know, somewhere between a third and half of those nests get depredated when they're not near a feeder. That was actually, Marcus, that was success. Oh, success. Was, it was 30 to 50% nest success when they were not near a feeder. Okay, excuse me. Gotcha. Thank you for clarifying that. We're, we're, uh, we took really diligent notes, and yeah. some, they all report them. One yeah, of them yeah. says the probability of being eaten, and the other one's a probability of success. Easy to get them mixed yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't okay. want to be misleading, so, so don't let me. <laughs> so no feeder. Yeah, no feeder. We have a 30 to 50% success. Mm-hmm. So that means the nest made it some length of time that they had predetermined in the study that you know they were going to decide if it gets to this time period, that means it's good. Mm so i'm simulating like a hatch i would assume yeah or so i don't know what the day length was that right. they did it but they had some t- arbitrary time that they did a priori before there was any known you know they, they were trying to just standardize mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. uh so the non-fed 30 to 50 percent success and then in the fed what they did is they put it in that gradient that i was talking to you about mm-hmm. except it was distance from a feeder okay so they've simulated these nests at varying distances from the feeder they went all the way out to 255 meters so it's like 300 yards i think mm-hmm. so simulated nest they stated in the paper they stopped there because they didn't think there was any reason to go any further um so in the fed the so you remember the range let me let me back up and just make sure you remember the range on the non-fed along that gradient 30 to 50 percent it always stayed in between that gotcha you know those are kind of the, the mm-hmm. lower and upper bound on the fed it was below 20 percent for the entire range whole thing all the way up to 255 meters and remember they stopped because they didn't think they need to go farther so they don't even know if they'd have gone to 400 yards yeah, if it, it would have been main, the same thing. Yeah, we, we main, you know, on average for the non-fed, we're on average 40%. And we never got above 20% success for the entire range of what they tested. Holy smokes. Oh, this is concerning. And so I'm, I'm, so, seeing, I'm hearing red flags. So, so hold up. So we did the math on this and, you know, you convert 
you know, 255 meter a, a circle with a radius of 255 meters to acres, and that adds up to 50 acres. Mm-hmm. There's a 50 acre patch around that feeder where nest success is affected. Yeah, and it was half. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily equate to a hen on a nest. Right. We're trying to be very clear about the limitations here. But 50 that, acres around each feeder so just think about that if for you to not in that scenario if that is applying to wild turkeys if they're within a that 50 acre radius they're being negatively affected by the feeder oh my gosh and so. in most cases just from what i've seen in places and being management and all that kind of stuff it's about a feeder about every 100 acres maybe or I'm, not more well i mean again <clears throat> We we live in the southeast. Mm-hmm. You and I both live mm-hmm. in Mississippi. We live, folks, again, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. We're trying to shed light on something potentially. Mm-hmm. But how many places you know where it's like a stack of 40 and 60 acre blocks and those are all, you know. Everybody's I, got their own 40 the or 60 or 100. 40 is going to have at the least one span. The owner size is yeah, less than 50 acres, I'm pretty sure, isn't it? Something like that. So if there's a 40-acre block and there's one spin cast feeder on it, that one feeder could potentially be harming the nest success of that entire 40 acres. If it, you know, if it responds similarly to what these simulated nests, then yes. Oh, my God. And, and you know, for example, with that, that uh, video that i put out recently mm-hmm. with the hen defending her nest yeah we don't have that in this in the simulated there's not a hen there right but that a lot of people commented on that as evidence that predators are a problem and she act, the, the video i put in there i don't think this was evident to people that hen was repeatedly interacting with those nest predators and then she hatched the nest and then brooded off with them into the sunset. I don't know what happened to them after they left that site, but she successfully nested, mm-hmm. even though she's, you Steadily know, had interactions. Getting, I mean, every night. Yeah. She's got raccoons and possums in there bothering her, and she was able to ward them off and still nested, which is great job, Mama. You know, yeah. like that's awesome. So just because you see that on the simulated nest that may not occur because she's really good at defending it but then also think about that on the other side when we she's we, getting messed with more yeah of she she might get messed mess with more and there's probably more potential that she is unsuccessfully defending her nest so i think i think another important part to think about too marcus is we have no data on Pult survival within a certain radius of these feeders either yeah, that's that, where my mind went we it's couldn't so, find any so it's about. like if you have one bad to the bone mama hen that is nested close to a feeder she gets bothered every night mm-hmm. but somehow she hatches those poults well, now she's got poults on the ground in a spot where you know there's a high density area mm-hmm. for predators mm-hmm. so what is that I mean, they i mean we all know a pole has a it's hard for them to grow up anyway mm-hmm. so but we're being, having them born into areas where there's already predators is there any data that y'all know about from this may not make sense when it comes out of my mouth that happens <laughs> been a lot there, been there we'll work through it together <laughs> sorry if you're, we'll get it if you're increasing numbers on nest predators more than likely you're increasing numbers on like squirrels rabbits 
all this kind of stuff too. In return, would that increase your your fouls of air? You well, see where I'm going no, with this? Yeah, well, that's what I was talking about with the poultry. Like, does that mean that's, you're that's bringing your... in more bobcats or hawks or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's difficult to get at. Yeah, I mean, I'm t- just. I mean, you're taking it to the next level of ecology, really. Right. Thinking about how right. all this starts to interact. Yeah, and that's the that's the kind of stuff. That's the reason I got into ecology right there because I, I love the complexity of the system and, and how one thing changes so much. Yes. So I remember, and I th- I think about it all the time, but I think about it right now. Applied aquatic and terrestrial ecology, first like mm-hmm. one of the first classes I took at Mississippi State, Doctor Robbie Kroger. I can't even say that. Yeah, I, I had a hard time if you didn't hear I, it. I couldn't spell it, and I taught that class but, when I was there. But one, of the fun, but one of the things we learned on the first day, it was like the seven ecological maxims or something mm-hmm. like that. But one of them was you can never just do one thing. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Yeah. So I think about, again, the guy that's like, I'm going to put out a corn feeder, and I'm going to positively affect my deer hunting, and that's all it's going to do. Mm-hmm. Impossible. Mm-hmm. You're going to affect more. Yeah. Apparently. Mm-hmm. 50 well, acres more apparently yeah. i mean there i think this is the kind of stuff though that people need to know that we have some data on there and, and that data you know you need to know about it mm-hmm. it's just this is stuff that i don't think about on a daily basis mm-hmm. i know there's a lot of people just like me that you know let's go put put out a deer feeder mm-hmm. give me a deer yeah. you know yeah don't think about all right. this stuff potentially happening yeah mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I'm even aware of some properties that, that use it specifically because they know they have too many deer and they, you know, use corn as an effective harvest tool to try to reduce the population by harvesting does over mm-hmm. that feeder too. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated subject for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm learning. I'm, my, my mind's about to explode over here. Yeah. Well, wait, there's more. Oh. <laughs> it's, yeah. Unfortunately, it's not going to get better. <laughs> So let, let's just continue on that since we're on the, the predation bit. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, it's not what people want to hear, but it's all they can hear sometimes. Uh, everybody wants to talk about predators. So we'll stay there for a minute. This next thing, this next study, it has some silver lining where there's some uh, things that we can glean from it that are pretty important. Okay. Uh, so this study was in Texas and again we're open book with these things if you want the study we'll give it to you and uh, we're not trying to hide anything here it is so they simulated nests there and they had that same sort of design where they have a simulated nest near a feeding site and a simulated nest that's not near a feeding site mm-hmm. and uh, you know they in Texas a lot of Texas is in this boom bust rainfall cycle so you have this you know when it doesn't rain the you know basically there's no vegetation there's no nesting and brooding cover and reproduction will be very poor and brett uh, told us recently on uh, the episode that's about to air with him the the hens will even not even try to nest they'll just not even do it so they have some adaptations to to even deal with it but they simulated nests and because they have that that cycle in rain they were able to do something really interesting that that we can glean from from that study so when they simulated a nest during a drought year those, those nests 100 percent failed okay from so predation yeah 
100% predated. Or, or scavenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something came and ate the eggs. They put right, it. right. But either uh, way, no, like, none of them made it. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Uh, that was on fed and unfed. Okay. Yeah. So, so feeding this, didn't matter during a drought yeah, year. Yeah, feeding had no different. It didn't matter where you put the nest. They all failed. Right. 100%. Following. Yeah. Uh, so then uh, they – so they have the fed and unfed and that that poor rainfall and then they got a hundred millimeters which how much did we determine that it was, was between four? three and four inches of rain So they got four inches of rain during that time frame yeah. <laughs> which to me is like we got that yesterday yeah you know? yeah <laughs> no. uh, so they got four inches of rain and over there when when you get rain that you know water is a limiting factor not sunlight like it is in a lot of the east mm-hmm. so what happens is the whole place becomes a foreblend basically and you have a whole bunch of good nesting and brooding cover when you get enough rain and uh reproductivity on turkeys usually increases substantially mm-hmm. and uh you know this we well documented patterns in the literature with turkeys uh so when we get a little bit of rain that four inches or five inches of rain the uh the fed sites still 100 percent no you know no none make it and then we drop down to about 75 percent for the ones that are not near a feeder so now we have some cover from all those plants you know that that have responded to the rain and it dropped it from 100 percent or uh yeah from 100 percent to 75 percent when there's not a feeder around but it stayed 100 percent if there was a feeder nearby yeah so that's the cool thing you're talking about in regards to this study marcus is that it gives us insights on the effect of feeding as well yeah. as the, the habitat. how habitat can mm-hmm. mitigate mm-hmm. nest losses as yes. well and that's what I, that's the silver lining yeah. that that we want to unpack really well but let's they had one more step or they got a little more rain. I think it was a little over five inches. About five, in, right at five. Apparently, is enough rain to make make the world change over there. <laughs> uh, so they got you know a little over five inches of rain or so, and uh, the then near the feeder dropped down to eighty percent. Didn't were lost. So twenty percent survival or eighty percent lost. So you had a lot better cover. Yeah, near the feeder, mm-hmm. and then. When it wasn't near a feeder, it dropped down to 40% oh, wow. loss. Substantial. Mm. Yes. So, again, you remember what I said earlier, the twice, twofold, same percentages came out here where we have twice as likely to fail when you had good, really good ha- habitat, mm-hmm. twice as likely to fail when you're near the feeder than when you're far. However, the other the silver lining to that is having really good nesting and brooding cover mitigates some of that effect Mm -hmm. but these are simulated nests Mm -hmm. i I can't state that enough i just want to make sure that people keep that in in mind but it's enough for me to worry about it right but even if the good habitat mitigates it you're still it's still twofold having a yeah having a negative impact Mm -hmm. close to a feeder Mm -hmm. when i brought this up i wasn't even thinking about that I know you would. <laughs> Makes my head hurt. Yeah, and we—that's only one layer of the onion. Mm. We got more layers. Yeah, but, but before we move on from that, I think you know one other silver lining we can glean from this related to habitat, because you know you talked to me and Marcus, and it's always going to get back to that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, is that 
this gives us an, it's an extreme example of showing the relative importance of habitat and mitigating nest predation. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. direct evidence of that. Right. Mm. But what's so powerful about this is if you look at that change in nest success across that range of habitat conditions, that's a greater effect size or putting it another way, improvement in nest success than we have seen in any kind of predator control study. Yeah. Mm. Right. Even, okay. even when we exclude them. Yeah. Yeah. Like the predators are excluded. That effect size is so much larger than any of those studies. Yeah. So like the habitat is driving it. Habitat is king is what you're saying. And, you know, and it has to be. And it's also one of the reasons it has to be is because predation is affected by habitat quality. So, so far we've talked about, you know, who uses the feed, right? And it's mostly predators. It's mostly non-targets that we're feeding. Um, And we've talked about how that potentially changes their distribution or their relative abundance in an area and how that affects nest success. Um, but then kind of like the third tier of potential negative effects of feeding on turkeys is the aflatoxin that particularly, you know, grains are capable of producing and specifically corn. Um, and there was a Mississippi state study that was recently completed that y'all are probably familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they specifically were looking at different types of feeding practices, you know, spin feeders, trough feeders, bait piles on the ground and the relative levels of aflatoxin present in each of those during different times of the year. Um, so they only looked at it through from May through June. Um, so this was, you know, towards, they started kind of towards the end of the nesting period, but I still think it has a lot of carryover to turkeys because, you know, you think about newly hatched poults, they're not eating grain. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not eating grain until they get a little bit bigger. They're just focused on insects initially. Mm-hmm. Um, but they found that, um, after four days, the average bait pile during summer exceeded the level that is toxic to birds. And that's uh, greater than or equal to 200 parts per billion. And at after, that, at that level, four days. yeah, after four days, uh, the average bait, that's not saying all bait piles had that level, but on average, they, were, they exceeded that value. However... I know you're going to it. Yeah. Once you got to eight days, it was 100% of the boat piles during yeah. the summer. Right. <clears throat> so it was everyone. I, I may have asked y'all this before. Is aflatoxins and aspergillosis, are those two related? Yes. Okay. Aspergillus produces a toxin that's called aflatoxin. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah the, the, the aspergillus is the organism. Okay. So we had a, a wildlife diseases class, and we learned about bunch of in a feed lot there was some corn that sat in a puddle of water and a bunch of ducks ate it and they died mm-hmm. i remember that that was in dr maris yeah. class yep yeah so yeah, we, that that one's been particularly important because we have corn agriculture all over the world right and, and there are a lot of people that are working on trying to figure out how to reduce that problem with corn because we have to grow corn for us mm-hmm. you know so th- there's a lot of work being done on aflatoxin yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, from you know for our for human consumption purposes so after four days the average bait pile exceeded 200 parts per billion after eight days they all did and the significance of that threshold is that um, it's been documented in birds that beyond that level you have decreased weight damaged livers and increased mortality that's specifically in wild turkey 
Okay, it wasn't across avian species. No, that was specific. That, that, to, was the, that was from the wild turkey challenge yes, feeding they, study. They fed turkeys that, and uh, yeah, that those were the results. And there are some other studies, and, and we don't have them listed on here, that have done some similar types of things. Right. And it's, this is just corn that produces this? It's, yes, corn that has the aflatoxin associated with it at levels that we've documented in the, the Mississippi study are occurring in corn that has been there well on average the corn piles have that by four days and all of them have it mm -hmm. by the time you get to eight during days, summer during the summer months yeah, yeah. May, may through uh, you said it earlier so is i mean just from what i'm gathering is it like similar to like some kind of mold or something yes yep. so it's yeah. something to do with our humidity well yeah i mean that's why it's more prevalent during the summertime right okay. so they so found it's hot, it's hot and Humid, yeah. yeah. To be clear, during fall and winter, those those aflatoxin rates were much lower. Okay. Yeah. Below that toxic threshold, for the most part. Um, and they didn't have it during the spring. And uh, the aspergillus has a range of temperatures that, and moisture that it needs to to do well in. And uh, I can't remember exactly what that is. And we were going to look at it, right. and, and we didn't. But. <clears throat> Taking that a little bit further, we don't have direct data related to wild turkeys on it, um, but it has been documented that for northern cardinals, um, they've shown a decreased immune function with a single dose of aflatoxin at 25 parts per billion. So we were talking about in summertime after four days, your average bait pile is going to have over 200 parts per billion, but they've showed... Yeah, in fact, uh, it was over 1,000. It was thousands, remember? Yeah. Yeah, I told you that. Yeah, it eventually got up to that level. So let, let's just, let's say those numbers again. Mm -hmm. a, a few people have gotten to us and it's like, man, you gotta, <laughs> gotta get off these numbers, but this is pretty important. Yeah. yeah. That that study with the Cardinals, they challenged it, the Cardinal one time with 25 parts per billion. And we have, from that Mississippi study, they had 100% of the bait piles in the thousands of parts per billion. Mm -hmm. We're, we're so, way over yeah. that problem. For, they definitely are getting juiced. What what problem? All right, so if if a turkey consumes that, what what problem does that cause? Like increased mortality rate? Like like is that gonna is that gonna affect their ability to reproduce? Is that gonna we, we don't have it in the wild turkeys. We don't have that data on them. Okay. Yeah. But so that's one thing we want to make clear is when we're speculating versus when we're yes. going off hard data. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and we're getting into the land of speculation here, but it's specu yeah. it's logical speculation. They were wild, it was wild turkeys that were challenged, but they were doing it in a facility and challenge like they were just giving them Gotcha. The uh you know, the corn that had different levels of it and seeing, you know, basically what are the what the effects <clears throat> were. Yeah, what the effects were. But the so they were wild turkeys, but they were in a right. fine thing. Right. But the fact that it's been demonstrated for another avian species that a much lower dose can affect immune functioning is obviously cause for concern um, because even if a turkey is exposed to a lower rate, it may have these sub-lethal effects like affecting immune function. And when you combine that with the fact that, you know, we're aware of this increased prevalence and distribution of new turkey diseases across the landscape, like LPDV being one of those, I mean... You know, you put two and two together, and mm, it, a it bit becomes worried. yeah. So the in that case, the corn may not be the direct cause of mortality, but it may slow the turkey down enough or decrease its immune function to the point that it becomes more susceptible to that. Yeah. So potentially, you're you're just making 
they eat this stuff, it, it makes them less fit to survive. Essentially. That, could. Yeah. That's the challenge studies don't look good. Mm-hmm. So again, we don't have that smoking gun. Like they're, we're not finding dead turkeys around feeders out, out in the wild. Like let's be very clear about that. But in an experimental, you know, thing where we try to learn this kind of stuff, we do those kinds of experiments to learn what are the what's the potential things to worry about and look for in nature. It doesn't look good. But one thing that I I spoke to to Marcus about earlier that I did want to make clear is when I have made you know i have released information related to this on turkeys before or any species for that matter you know i get a lot of guys from texas where this is a very widely used uh and accepted practice i mean it's part of their culture down there right um that you know we put tons and tons of corn across the landscape and we've got piles of turkeys you know especially like in rio range right um and i think that that's important to establish a context here that you know, maybe they're in that semi-arid environment that's not as conducive to aflatoxin mm-hmm. um, growth. And so it's kind of a different context. Yeah, that's that's it. And, and It hasn't been tested know, there, to my right. knowledge. Well, I think there has been a little bit of work there. We don't have, a, okay. have it in front of us. Uh, but I do rem- recall seeing some stuff from there. Uh, but so we recently had another guest on, on our podcast Dwayne Elmore and he was talking about some work in Oklahoma that he was part of and they found unsafe levels of aflatoxins associated with their their feeds there too Mm -hmm. so uh, one thing that he noted in in that episode was they they actually designed it a really well designed experiment from what it sounded like uh they they looked at different feed types and they compared milo to corn and statistically speaking the deer use didn't change so Hmm. if you fed them milo or corn they ate at the same amount but raccoon use of the milo was a far suppressed on the on the milo okay so So it, it could serve as a viable alternative right so if you if you must feed uh you know that will be one way to try to help with some of these issues. The raccoon use is suppressed by switching to Milo. And the other important thing what links into this part of our, our podcast is the aspergillus does not perform nearly as well and, and as quickly. It can still grow aspergillus and produce to- aflatoxin, but it does not happen nearly as fast or to the same degree. So, uh, the, you know, the Milo is a safer option. Uh, just in general, and you can potentially decrease uh, the uh, non-target use, especially of raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, important stuff. Uh, so maybe, <clears throat> you know, whatever that mechanism is that increases predation rates on simulated nests around feeders, whatever that mechanism actually is, you're taking that out of the equation by switching to Milo because you know you're not supplemental feeding the nest predators to the same extent so right. you're not you're not potentially boosting their survival and reproduction or just because their their use rates are lower you're not concentrating the ones that already exist out there around the feeder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean it's a little bit better i'm still kind of depressed <laughs> still, well, it's worrisome man. it's not a, it's not a good story well, and, and and this is you know, everybody's going to be like we're going to become a target about this, and I know that. But 
Um, like we have enough data to know that we need to worry about this and we need to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. Is it like we've got to figure out, is it a problem to what degree and what do we need to do about it? Mm-hmm. And there's probably a bunch of people out there mad right now. It's like, well, obviously we need to get rid of it. And then there's the other ones. Obviously we need to trap all the coons. And then, I mean, it, like we got to, we need to pay attention to it. The the way this is the way I think of like presenting this information because there's no way around it. This is a very mm-hmm. volatile subject to talk about. But I think about the guy. Like I said, probably the vast majority of the type of person that would listen to this. Mm-hmm. Some of these guys may be doing extensive work on their properties, maybe doing mm-hmm. some habitat work, but it's mixed in with supplemental feeding. Mm-hmm. And while they're doing everything they can they if they it's on a very basic comparison it's like your buddy if he's (laughs) it's like if if your buddy's about to go out on a date and he's about to walk out the house and you realize he's got something green in his teeth you gonna let him walk out the door you gonna say hey man i'm just trying to help Mm -hmm. you might want to get that out of your teeth he done took a bath put on cologne too but he still got that green so it's like hey you're doing (laughs) incredible it's gonna be a little little thorn in your side (laughs) so it's like hey you're doing you're doing all this stuff to try to help your turkey population i'm just saying that corn for you got out there may be doing harm Mm -hmm. yeah and let's look at that i'm not like no one in here is trying to point a finger at anybody we all want more turkeys yeah no, nah, well, yeah. that's one thing I think anybody will never disagree about that's listening to this. Yeah. We all want more game to hunt. Right. Yeah. And how are we going to get there? Yeah. Know? And this is, you know, again, this is one of those issues because of the controversy and everything and the the interest group, you know, different interests in it and everything that that's really hard to talk about and it's kind of being avoided. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to, I, I think that we have, we have tried to cultivate trust with the audience to know we're just trying to give you data this is the data that we have mm-hmm. and there's reason for us to be concerned about this and look at it more and think about that and you know the implications of what we're doing because we have certainly changed on the landscape level across a lot of the south at least on this particular aspect and it's just not discussed i've never heard anyone discuss any of those studies before no on this and and we're not even done yeah i didn't th- I'd, like we we still got a lot more. yeah if it, i don't know if we're how far we are into it but we, we got some more stuff we can go as much jordan <laughs> you want to keep talking no, i'm here for the I'm, party yeah no i'm because we we have yet to and it might like what the reason why i thought of this in the first place might not even may even be a non-factor i don't know but the two things y'all have listed off so far that wasn't even i wasn't even a thought. Mm-hmm. So where does your mind go initially when you think about this in the context of turkeys? I just said I wasn't pointing fingers at anybody, but I, okay. Where, why are you pointing at me? So, uh, we're, so no. we're, we're in we're in too deep already to back out okay. now. And honestly, if y'all tell me that like that's a non-factor, then I'll be like, okay, good. You know, it'd be a relief. <laughs> Thank you. I I know. I know. For a fact, there are turkeys getting harvested, shot, killed, whatever you want to call them, because feeders are influencing that. In states where 
you will st- where the law about that is either a gray area or it's straight up you're not supposed to shoot turkeys over bait and i'm not saying turkeys are getting shot under feeders mm. i'm saying that the feeders are heavily manipulating their movement and that is causing them to get shot like i don't know how many they're getting patterned yeah that's a good way to put it <laughs> open and day turkey type deals are like he ain't getting shot at the feeder, but he's getting shot at the logging road that goes to that food plot where the feeder is. Mm. And he ain't coming down that logging road because he heard some good yelping. That's where my head went. Please tell me it's a non-factor. I'll feel better about it. They're smart. <laughs> no, there's okay. I don't. <laughs> I don't know that we have any date on it. No. Okay, good. Okay, good. It, it would there be. be it some, would be pure speculation on our yeah, part. Yeah. 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 Okay. Is that a reasonable hypothesis? I sure, I sure think it is. It'd be an easy one to test. Hmm. Well, there yeah. we go. We got a project. See? <laughs> See? <laughs> Pull well, out your wallets. I, I don't think that we're going to have many uh, folks wanting to donate no. funding for us to, to, yeah. <laughs> to do that one. Yeah. Uh, that's my guess. We're probably never going to get another donation after this. But we're going to go on with it. I'm, I think you will. I'm serious. Look, look, do I think that this subject is going to step on some toes? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Do I think it's probably going to make some people mad? Yes, I do. However. It's also going to make a lot of people think. I've said this. Yeah. I've said this before. I said I, I do. I have faith in the overall hunting community and especially in the turkey hunting mm-hmm. community. And whether I think there is a chance that some of these guys will hear that and they'll go, gosh, dang it, maybe I need to rethink my faith. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a more positive yeah. response. I have faith I in our group of hunters. Well, I, I've said it a bunch of times, and I'll say it again, that we're concerned about turkeys, and I have been so inspired by the turkey community, and that's including the industry, the researchers, the biologists, the hunters. People have come together over this. Mm to try to figure out i mean there's argument over what the right step is but people have come together like i've never seen with anything else ever oh in, it's been a movement and i and i'm yeah i'm so inspired by that and and it's so appreciative and and i've had so much support up until this launched uh and you guys just <laughs> i guess all that support probably uh some of that's gonna go away but uh <laughs> You know, we're just trying to be honest. Our role uh, as scientists, Will and I say this a lot, our role is to try to play, you know, uh, well, we're trying to play this role where we deliver you data. Like this is data that's been collected. It's published in peer-reviewed journals. We'll give you all all of them. Uh, that's fine. It's not exhaustive. We got a lot more data on it, and one of the things I wanted to cover is a big overview paper where they collected 115 studies in 35 countries, representing 68 species. Mm-hmm. Pretty big study. Right. They collected all this information, so like we're, we're trying. I, I can't go through all that on a podcast. No. But they they kind of summarize some findings from that big literature review. Uh, that that I, actually I don't even know that they include any of the studies we've already talked about so it's on other stuff but they were trying to figure out what the wildlife health implications are of supplemental feeding just in general and that could be in any form I'm not talking about protein pellets in the feeder necessarily but those studies are included mm. and uh, so were bird feeders probably and uh, all kinds of things mm-hmm. 
you know, in other words, there's a lot of data out there on a bunch of species in many different kinds of contexts. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have some of the same kind of smoking gun type thing mm-hmm. with turkeys, but we're trying to present you what evidence we have from these different systems that we think might be relevant that we need to be thinking about as as people who all want to, to uh, make sure that we conserve turkeys into the future. About half of the studies, so it's 46% of the studies, were in North America. Uh, the first thing, and this is the, another part we haven't even talked about here, supplemental feeding tended to increase, I'm reading it verbatim, supplemental feeding tended to increase the risk of pathogen transmission by increasing contact rates between hosts. Mm-hmm. It was 95% of the studies. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got, so they, now you've got feed affecting predation rates potentially, feed producing toxins. Toxins then, reducing immune function and then, to, to ward off pathogens. And then feed increasing disease transmission rates. Yes. It also pre- tended to promote pathogen accumulation at feeders or the surrounding environment. That was 77%. So, in other words, some pathogens can sit there, not even associated with an animal, mm-hmm. and they're concentrated near those places right. mm. in those studies. So, uh, this is obviously painting with a really broad bush and look, you know, taking a zoom out, but, you know, uh, there's reason to be concerned. Yeah. I, I was uh, a part of one study, so we're talking about pathogens. Most people are probably thinking about a virus or something, uh, but... I was part of one study on raccoons where we had raccoons that were given to us where we could kind of dissect them and see what was inside of them uh, from properties that had feeding, uh, like corn feeders on it versus properties that didn't. And this was in Mississippi as well. And uh, the pathogen or the the, uh, parasite loads of the raccoons from the fed sites was much, was, was higher. Mm. Uh, so we published that that paper as well from Mississippi, but uh, you know, so pathogens could include a virus or or bacterial thing, or it could be uh, you any know, one of a number of parasites. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, essentially, just making like a little hot zone. Mm-hmm. It's like a little petri dish. Yeah. yeah. Just at every corn feeder. Yeah. The uh, provision food, they said it was also a source of immunosuppressive contaminants, which would include the, the aflatoxins. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. what that means, suppressing immune function. It was associated with increased wildlife stress, rates of injury, pathogen prevalence, and malnutrition. Stress and wildlife injury. And what, is, what does that equate to? Like they got injured for some reason associated with it and i don't know i got you the thing that struck me out of that is one of the things that they listed was malnutrition yeah so we're fe- becoming we're feeding wildlife and they become malnutritioned as a result of it is it because they come too dependent on that well it's one of those things that and i think it's kind of intuitive like you can i mean like my my young and she won't eat nothing but candy and ice cream. Gotcha. Yeah. And, I, and I don't like, I don't want her to eat only that, but she would do that. And if she did do that and I allowed that, she could 
probably getting malnutrition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, we're just feeding them this one source, and they're not getting everything they need. There's yeah, also so. there's also a chance with certain grain feeds we know in wildlife that if the if animals consume too much of it, it changes the composition of the bacteria in their digestive system, mm-hmm. which in turn affects their ability to digest certain foods. So it could be that that overconsumption is leading to that that microbial change and thus they can't extract as much nutrients from food as they normally would they're probably not they probably don't have as diverse of a diet as they would in the absence of that supplemental food source too Mm -hmm. and that's how it could affect their performance Hmm. this is loaded there is a lot of layers yeah this thing just keeps snowballing Mm -hmm. but i i think one thing that's important to talk about is given everything that we just covered if you are going to feed what are some of the ways that you could potentially mitigate that risk Mm -hmm. yeah and the most immediate obvious one that comes to mind for me especially as it pertains to the aflatoxin and the nest predation risk is avoid feeding during nesting season and avoid feeding during summer when you've got that greater probability of the aflatoxin forming at higher concentrations Mm -hmm. that are toxic Mm -hmm. yeah that brings me to another question you just mentioned try to avoid feeding during nesting season. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have a feeder going all deer season. You attract all these nest predators. They call that home now because that's where the buffet is. When that buffet stops, do they disperse back to normal or yeah. do they stay? We don't, we don't know. know. We don't know. Well, and that's, that's, so we don't know if new individuals come in. And yeah, there's a lot to it. Now. Yeah. But in terms of what I suspect would happen if, let's say, we're in the home range of a raccoon and you put a – put a food source in it it's going to get really concentrated in its activity around that food source and i suspect if you removed it it probably reduced that concentration again mm-hmm. but, it, but, but the question is in the meantime did you increase the litter size yeah in the survival of the offspring so that you've inflated the density and yeah, that's yeah. going to have a carryover yeah. effect yeah. and we just we yeah, don't just have don't that data even know. if you cut it off there's still more out man there, it's, right? it's a lot to think about on this and we really just is. and we just well, don't know right you guys wanted us to unpack it. I like I it. I do want, yeah. So here is, it is. <laughs> and, I, and Marcus, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're you're more familiar with that the the Wang study than I am, the one that was in Mississippi with the mm-hmm. aflatoxin. But um, I'm pretty sure that I recall from that study that they found that just piles of corn on the ground were the worst mm-hmm. in terms of aflatoxin concentrations, yep. whereas spin spin type feeders were associated with lower rates. Mm-hmm. So that's another yeah. way that people could potentially mitigate this risk. But yeah. I mean, think think you know what what is promoting the growth of the organism? One is this really high quality food source, which corn is as good as it gets. Two is the humidity, and three is the, the temperature. Mm-hmm. So think about that. Even when when you're holding all of that food in a a feeder, mm-hmm. you know uh, that. I mean, obviously, it's not it, going it can, to be a it can dry, get cool. moisture in there. It's, it's got a hole be in a, it. a dry, cool place in in uh, the south generally. Oh. Yeah, and so. a feeder, even a spin cast. I mean, during the hotter months, it turns this 30, 40, 50 degrees hotter inside that inside that plastic mm-hmm. feeder than it would be outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, um, you know, I, I can't remember the range of temperatures that uh the organism grows in but it could even be that if it gets too hot for it i I Mm -hmm. don't know what that is Mm -hmm. so i can't speak to it but 
you know i'm just trying to get you to think about all the different aspects to this because it it seemed like this is going to be something pretty easy yeah and then we were like well we're we're going to have to take notes and do some homework right here and really study on this to make sure that we present this as objectively as we can based right. on information and this is not all the data out there mm-hmm. uh, you know just we're, we're trying to build an objective stories you know uh, storyline that's understandable to understand this is complex and it's something we need to be looking at yeah mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. My my eyes have been opened. Is there do you know if there's any planned research to look into this more or is it still just kind of is anybody looking into this besides y'all? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cuz what I what I've just heard and it, are there more layers in the onion to look at today? <laughs> well, one well, of the ones that I I've been particularly interested in is that question that I brought up just a minute ago is whether or not it's potentially supplementing nest predator populations in the sense that it's improving their their reproductive rates. Right. Um and so that's a study that I've had in mind to do for a while. Um I actually presented that one to Turkeys for Tomorrow a while back and they were very interested in it, but there were some other things that were higher priority at the time. So that's something that may be an eventual reality. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, you know, we need to that I think there's enough interest with turkeys that this is something that that should be on the minds of people that do this kind of work and, and thinking about it. And I, I can't, I'm, I'll be speaking out of turn if I told you there was data or there were people that were going to work on it. But I, um, I seem to remember that didn't, didn't Dwayne or, or Coulter, one of them said, I thought that they, they might do some work related to feeders. I don't recall. So I, I think I think there are a couple of other researchers. I don't have any ongoing research mm-hmm. uh, anymore. That uh, I do have some from the Mississippi study that we haven't gotten published yet. Uh, we didn't even cover that. Uh, Y'all are going like, to like dissect this even more on your yes. podcast per week, huh? It's going to be several yes. series. Yes. So and we, and we have lots of scientists that we're going to try to get on. Yeah. There. So I mean. You know, they're looking at this from different perspectives and, you know, there's, there's, there may even be data to suggest in some context, you know, some of these things aren't a problem and we're Mm going to try to find the people that are doing that work. If they're, if we, if we can find it, we're going to cover it. Right. Right. Because we want you to have the full story. Yeah. The thing is you need to see the whole context and, uh, it's hard you know to give you the whole context and and there's probably studies out there that suggest some of these things aren't a big problem in some contexts and mm-hmm. there you know we've covered several of them that make me me worry for sure uh just not not i'll, I'll just speak in generalities one of the the student that i had working on the feeder project uh we we're looking at a few things of interest one everybody knows if you put a feeder out you get all that activity around it you end up especially if it's wet you get a big mud hole around the you know you got all this open ground around it and we wanted to look at a few things one if we're concentrating all the deer use right there and all the 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 uh feeding activity how's that affecting the plant community well we know for one thing it's really increasing the amount of bare ground so we had another part of that same study where we were 
tracking seeds, seed dispersal. So this, there's seeds in the feeder, right? So things that come to eat seeds in that feeder also eat seeds that are not in the feeder from the environment. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine if you concentrate all the activity near a feeder, all of a sudden you kind of become this vacuum for seeds in a place where you've cleared all the vegetation. So we were basically looking at what are getting, what's getting directed there, and then if you move the feeder, what colonizes all that right right it's just like preparing a seed bed to plant for a food plot i mean that's exactly what you do you clear all the other vegetation you disturb the soil Mm -hmm. you add seed and you add water you know it's the optimum conditions for plant growth yeah so uh we we have to revisit the sites to get what actually colonized but we do know what came to it in in terms of seeds Mm -hmm. and uh this the amount of seed we call it seed rain. So just think about like how hard is it raining? It rains much harder near the feeder than it does far from feeders. Right. And there were some species that are undesirable, like, uh, you know, problematic species. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are dispersed by animals. And under like, normal conditions, that would be dispersed over a broader landscape, right? Yeah, they what? might be uh, dispersed over a broader landscape and they're not they're certainly usually not going to be concentrated in areas that are really easy to colonize right a receptive right. seed bed uh-huh. yeah got it okay that's mm-hmm. another interesting so, thing right so we don't you know may, it could create a situation we could spread particular types of plants we right, right. we don't have the data fully <laughs> done yet to figure that out but another another layer of the onion right that that we need to understand and think about and uh we did not find a really big effect of the herb the herbivory mm-hmm. so all the deer feeding on the plants around it which is there's been inconsistent results on that across studies as well mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but you still could have long-term effects on the vegetation because of that you know the input of, yeah. of new seeds into that seed bank potentially negatively affecting your habitat mm-hmm yeah, so there's a lot of things going on. You're, you're a lot. just like you said. You're not doing just one thing. You can never you're, just do one thing. You're affecting a lot of different things, and uh, you know we don't really have a very good handle on movement, and you know a lot of these things we don't have data on the wild birds. You know, and what, yeah. like with turkeys, like what are they doing related to feeders? But I certainly know, and and everybody out there knows that they they'll come to feed. Yeah. So. You know, one of the other things that we didn't even talk about today is whether or not these feed sites turn into ambush sites, even for adult turkeys. Mm-hmm. You know, is it possible that like bobcats and coyotes in particular have a learned behavior? Where I've seen some pictures. You would think they'd have to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you would a predator being opportunistic. Mm-hmm. You would think they'd ha- that they would have to be. Yeah. Yeah. When I I heard uh yeah. Dana Morin was on on Gamekeepers the other day, mm-hmm. and she's a predator expe- specialist, mm-hmm. movement specialist. And uh, they asked her a similar question to that, and and I believe she responded very similar that we won't have very strong data, but you know, like a coyote, if they get an eat, if they figure out a place where they can get an easy meal, she said something along the lines she can't imagine that they would not exploit that opportunity. Right. So I don't know, but <laughs> out of all the different effects, like you said, there's a lot that we that we know about, some we don't mm-hmm. know. Can y'all think of just in 
in in terms of wild turkeys out of all these effects can you think of any positive ones tied to supplemental feeding corn during the springtime during nesting can you think of any positive effect Not off the top of my head. I think our silence is an answer <laughs> in itself. <laughs> well, I mean, think uh, about. I mean, seriously, think about yeah, that. Yeah, there. And to be uh, transparent about it, uh, the, these things that we were laying out, that it's not necessarily a certainty that they all are at play all the time in every place. Right. This is right. context-dependent stuff, and there may be areas where some of these things, like we talked about with Texas, with the aspergillus, probably not an issue there. Um, you know, that this is, this is just something that we need to be looking at and be worried about, it, and especially with the eastern populations where we're particularly worried about the populations mm -hmm. you know some of those things could yeah. be real uh you know real threats that we need to be we need to understand yeah and they may not be an issue but i would like to know that yeah so uh i you know before everybody starts throwing rocks at us um you know your, your context it may not be an issue but we know enough that we know that we should be thinking about this uh, the other thing in terms of the positives, we're, we're going to cover this on our, our episodes, but I can't remember. There may have been one supplemental feeding study from Texas that showed a positive effect on survival or something. Gotcha. And I, I, I don't remember right. what, it, uh, what it was now, but there is one mm -hmm. on turkeys. And, and I just can't remember, but I do remember that I think it, it showed either a statistically significant positive or it trended positive at least. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's probably some stuff that's neutral. Right. Like, you, you know, we, we were trying to lay out that we do have evidence of things you could be concerned about, but in some contexts, some of those things might be neutral or, or uh, even in, in some cases we could see a positive, but those cases are pretty rare. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the, my biggest takeaway from this is I just want – I feel like this needs to be looked into more. Mm -hmm. I feel like it, there's a lot of – like a term you said, there's a lot of things that are just striking, make you raise your eyebrow and go, hmm. Mm -hmm. the, we need to find out about the, this. The control nest predation is what really has blown my mind about this. Yeah. Like under those mm -hmm. conditions – feed versus no feed yeah that's what really has op opened my eyes today yeah. yeah well the you know we talked a lot about the weaknesses of those studies but we didn't talk about the strength of them yeah. which you know we have a replicated very well designed experiment where we have fairly well isolated feeding as a mechanism yeah, yeah. and that is a tall order to do with a wild turkey so you know simulating the nest while it has weaknesses there also is the strength that you can design a really well designed experiment that's basically impossible in nature to do with a real real animal in many cases anyway. right right yep well i imagine i'll have to listen to this over again <laughs> this is not this has not been a fun conversation but it no. has been an informative one no yeah. that's what it's we're, not going to be fun to to get all this 
catch all this heat we're about to get. Well, yeah. and also, but, um, but we got to we got to be honest. Yeah, we got to we got to try to do whatever we can to have it for generations past us. And uh, with that being said, y'all are going to be airing more into this, mm-hmm. going just dissecting it layer by layer. Um, and when is that going to be coming out? Not sure yet. Okay, later it's in the spring, right? Yeah. yeah, we we have one episode that we already kind of we talked to Dwayne Elmore. So if you want to mm-hmm. listen to it, it's it's uh, the episode we have Dwayne Elmore with, and he talked a little bit about the Oklahoma stuff that we've mentioned on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we, I'm not sure what the timeline will look like, but it's coming. Yeah, right. Okay. And, and some of it will depend on how people, you know. If, if we get a big response from people and they need to hear that, then we'll make it happen. Yeah. Like we'll, yeah. we'll expedite topics that are of, uh, of very high interest because of, you know, we want to, we want to respond to what the people's needs are. And that's why we're doing this. I would have to imagine this was probably going to get a pretty, pretty sizable response, but yeah, I remain with what I said. I, I have faith in our community mm-hmm. and I, I, I think the response is going to be more of like, please tell me more about this. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm hoping when, and whenever y'all do come out with that, we'll do everything we can on our end through primos and on X to usher people to that information. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's information. Cause like if, if we all can agree, all of us in this room and everyone listening to it, we're all on the side of wild turkeys and whether mm-hmm. or not it's information you want to hear or information that's tough to hear. Yeah. Got to be heard. And- and uh you know folks some folks out there if you if you uh like to read peer-reviewed literature uh, we're happy to send it and if, but if you also know of literature that we didn't that you would like us to cover in detail mm. send it to us because we're we're i think we've kind of established that for by now in, in our podcast we are giving you the the different points of view that we can capture from different uh mm-hmm. people and we're, you, we're trying to do that and trying to give you the whole story and why there's maybe confusion or disagreement or whatever even among the scientists so mm-hmm. uh if you have you know something that you want us to cover then we will there's one big issue that i'm guessing is going to come up i don't really want to say it just to see if it does but we've been getting a bunch of questions about another aspect of this and how much data we have on it and we've dug around a little bit on on that aspect as well and we're going to cover that in detail gotcha so we're getting questions on it but i don't want us to end up on just blow the lid off that one yeah we we don't need another 45 minutes yeah yeah no i've I've enjoyed it and educated me on some things and yeah that's that's a good thing yeah I do, yeah. I, I mean, I definitely. I le- I'll leave this conversation with more worries, but I also leave it with more more answers. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and we'll, well, should you be concerned? I think that the answer to that is yes. To do to what degree and when? That's where we need to go with it and figure yeah, it out. That needs to be found out. Jordan, you have anything to add? Any uh, more questions? Nope, nope. I'm going. You don't want to know anymore. I'm going to go eat. <laughs> going to go eat some corn. <laughs> yeah. I don't want corn dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, gentlemen, I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Um, Good to be here with you. Yeah, yeah likewise. Not a us, not a fun conversation, but one that needed to happen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm just like, I'm not even my normal self about it. You know. I, yeah, 
It was uh, so. So I guess if if y'all have made it to this point in the episode, if y'all if y'all didn't get upset and turn it off, if you made it to this point, this episode came about. We had finished recording the episode we just released a week or two ago, and we started. We were just shooting the breeze, and this subject came up, and y'all started talking. I said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! This is, it just <laughs> needs to be a whole thing." So. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that we did it, and uh, yeah, please keep us in the loop when that series mm-hmm. comes out because I know myself and Jordan will be very intent on listening to it. And then, yeah, I was I knew people were in tune with wanting to know more about turkey science. Mm-hmm. I was blown away the the episode we released last time. I had a significant number of people. How do I get? How do I read these these studies that you're yeah, talking about? Yeah. Which I'll do a good a good job of putting mm-hmm. them, to, you know, on your show page where you yeah. can find them. But they people are into this stuff, man. They yeah. want to know. They they want answers, and, and that's what we're trying to help too. with. Yeah, I um, mean, they, they were, where can I find the studies? I'm yeah. like, you want to read the study? Like yeah. it's just some just yeah. A, yeah. a guy from you know, yeah. but we try our best to to to, well, to help yeah. where we can. When I think the you know the scientific community is getting aware that there are a lot of people out there like that mm-hmm. i've been surprised by it the same way but we, we've got multiple uh folks in the in the wild turkey world that are making efforts to get data you know the, these data driven things that the peer-reviewed manuscripts that we've published on these topics in places where you can get them and, and when i mean you i mean anyone out there that wants to read it and uh, we've, we've all been making concerted efforts in different ways to try to make it accessible to you and then have these kinds of discussions so yeah. that you can understand the, you know, the full context if we can give it to you. And then sometimes we miss the context and everybody tells us about it and then we do another one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Guys, thank you. We'll wrap this up. Didn't enjoy the conversation. <laughs> it's normally it's normally fun, but this one this one was like. not. But it was important, like I said. Um, but yeah, keep us in the loop. And uh, as always, guys, if you have any questions, feel free to send them in. And thank you so much for listening to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. Mm-hmm.